All right. Today we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, Mark, Mark chapter 11, the very beginning of it. And it's one of those days where it's definitely helpful if you just have your Bible open with you, and you can kind of follow along as we move through it. Now, if Jesus came in this morning and walked among us, what would he find? What would he see in our church? What would he see in you personally? What would he see in me? But what would he see in us as a community? Today's Palm Sunday, and it's called this because it's the day that Jesus finally arrived and entered Jerusalem. Palm Sunday marks the last Sunday of Jesus' life. All four Gospels record this event. Mark 11, Matthew 21, Luke 19, and John 12. They all record it. And John's account is the one who differs the most because of where he places it in his Gospel. He places it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And there's lots of different scholarly debates about why he differs. But one thought being that it's because John is not entirely focused on uh, telling the story chronologically in that moment, but highlighting the nature of Jesus' ministry. Now, wherever you land on that debate, the important part is that all four gospel writers saw that this event was significant, that it mattered. And Mark's gospel has been building us up to this point. He finally arrives in Jerusalem. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that Jesus predicts his death three times. But in the third moment, the third time he predicts it, he finally talks about how when we get there, this is what's going to happen. When we get to Jerusalem, this will happen. He's been walking on his way to Jerusalem, which for him means he's walking on the way to the cross. He's walking towards his death. But when he finally arrives, he arrives as a king. As a king coming to his capital city. And the disciples and the crowds, they have these ideas about what this king will do when he arrives. And yet as we read, we begin to see the, that the expectations and reality are quite different. What will King Jesus find when he enters into his city? And what does he do? That's what we're going to look at today. So Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1, and this is what it reads. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches and, uh, that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Father in heaven, 
We invite you to speak to us through your son Jesus and what he does here in this moment. And we ask that we would have courage to acknowledge what it is that you want to do in us, that we would obey and respond, and that we would receive the life, the healing, the forgiveness that you want to give us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, he makes this decision to stop walking. He's been in the Galilee with his disciples, and they're making this long trek. Trying to imagine, like, walking from Kelowna down here. It's a long journey. It's going to take a while. You finally get, right before you enter into the city, stop walking. You tell your disciples to get a colt. A baby donkey, a young donkey that's never been ridden by anyone. It's not broken in, hasn't been trained. Go get one. And that's what you decide you're going to walk into. Up until that point, Jesus had walked all of that region, all the way down till the Mount of Olives, just outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And now he's riding on this donkey. And this was an intentional decision. And one that wouldn't have been all that surprising, because during this time, Kings would ride into the city, to the cheers of the city's inhabitants. And that's what Jesus is greeted with, with people laying their cloaks on the donkey and on the road. But all of this happens behind a social backdrop that we need to understand if we're going to feel its significance. One, the Israelites were not a free people. They are living under the rule of the Roman Empire. They are subjects, servants of Rome. They pay taxes to Rome. Roman centurions and soldiers walk about the city. Israel lives in their land, but they're not free in their land. There's this empire that hovers over them, and it takes rebellion seriously. And the king, as far as people here, is not Jesus. It's not a Jewish king either. His name is Caesar. Second, Jesus' arrival lands on the week leading up to Passover. Passover was this celebration of how God had rescued Israel out of Egypt. There's this level during this week, this level of expectancy surrounding this period of time where God has done it. We remember what God has done for us. He can do it again. He can free us from this new oppressor. He can deliver his people. And the one who will deliver his people is the one that God sends, the Messiah, the anointed one, God's son, the son of David. And when he comes, he will drive the Gentiles, the foreigners out of the land, pushing out the oppressive empire, bringing God's kingdom on earth. The third, there's that expectation of this, But more than a century earlier, in this very city, in Jerusalem, Simon the Maccabee drove out Israel's enemies out of Jerusalem. And the people celebrated when this happened, praising God and singing songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed. And when they did, they waved palm branches. And the temple was rededicated. And there was even a feast for the rededication that talked of a redemption of sorts. It wasn't a complete redemption. They weren't entirely free. 
And elsewhere, literature from that period of time, 100 years prior to Jesus coming in, talked about the, the palm branches in the context of this messianic expectation. Palm leaves were tied to the expectations about the Messiah and military victory over oppressors. So all of this makes sense then, makes sense of what the disciples and those around them are doing as Jesus rides his donkey as he enters into Jerusalem. They see it as a triumphant entry, and they grab their palm branches to celebrate the king arriving in their city. And they cheer Hosanna, which literally means save us. And they shout these national slogans about the restoration and glory of the old kingdom of David. That would be the kingdom of the Messiah. The people are expecting a typical king, and they are receiving Jesus as such. But Jesus will subvert their expectations. He reveals he has different ideas when he chooses to ride a donkey, not a war horse. A young donkey, never ridden before. And in so doing, Jesus lets it be known that he is the one that Zechariah prophesied about in Zechariah 9.9, which reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When you read Zechariah 9, that chapter, it is this silent testimony against a false view of the Messiah. In fact, Leslie Newbegin notes that it's about the promise of a gift of peace to the nations through the universal rule of Yahweh. And that the triumph of Yahweh will not be brought about by the military power of Israel. God will bring peace to the nations And it will not come through military force. He doesn't come on a war horse. He comes on a donkey. He doesn't come through violent force. He comes in righteousness and in gentleness. Jesus comes trotting into the city not to take life, but to suffer and die as a ransom for many. He is the king, but he is not the king that the people are expecting. He will not fit in within these neat categories. He will offend some of your sensibilities and affirm others. He will comfort you with blessing for the poor in spirit and for those who grieve. And yet he offends you when he says his way is the only way, the narrow way that leads to true life. That he is the only way to the Father. That if you want to be a disciple of his, you have to pick up your cross and follow him. Jonathan Edwards, he notes that in Jesus, there's, we, we discover this combination of categories that we didn't think could ever go together, that we don't expect in kings or in anyone. Both infinite majesty and, and complete humility, perfect justice and boundless grace, complete sovereignty and absolute submission, entirely sufficient in himself and at the same time completely trusting and dependent on God the Father. And we have to take him as he is, not on our terms, but on his. And if there's nothing that challenges us about Jesus, about who he is, about his teachings, that challenges your pride, your personal autonomy, your trust, something is wrong. Jesus cannot be simply a nicer, smarter, and more consistent version than you. 
a very, very small God. And that's not who Jesus is. And that's part of what Mark has been setting up throughout his gospel. It's this subversion of expectations of who people expect Jesus to be and who he really is. There's this subversion of expectations of what people are expecting about the Messiah King and this failure of the disciples, those closest to him, to actually see who Jesus is and what he's doing. And and an even greater failure of the religious leaders to even accept Jesus and what he's doing among them. But Mark does something really interesting as he walks, as, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He tells us uh, what Jesus does, he, the instructions he gives to his disciples, how Jesus rides in, how, uh, how people are praising God and welcoming Jesus. And what is the first thing that we are told the king does when he comes into the city? What's the first thing you expect the king to do? What does he do? Look at verse 11. Verse 11 reads, And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. It was already late. It was already late. As a reader, we should be saying, huh? Late for what? Mark has been building up to this point. Think of like a story. You're building up to this point where you're coming to the city. This is the city where Jesus is predicting he's going to be killed. He's being received as a king, and then we're told, and it was already late. He comes to the temple, it was already late. There's almost this letdown. We're expecting something's supposed to happen when the king arrives, and then it's just, it's already late. So he goes back out to Bethany. He goes out three kilometers outside of the city of Jerusalem, back to Bethany. It feels anticlimactic. In fact, it's actually maybe more like foreshadowing. It's already late because the sun is setting on the sacrificial system. God was about to establish a new covenant, a new promise with his people. And so if you keep reading in verse 12, this is what we're told. On the following day, they came from Bethany. He was hungry, speaking of Jesus, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. Now this sounds really weird. You look at this and you're like, man, Jesus is hangry and he just cursed a fig tree, because there was nothing. And it wasn't even in season. That's how you know. Like, this is um, maybe what you expect, like, a three- or four-year-old to do when they're upset. They just curse the plant that doesn't have the food that you want. It's not what you expect Jesus to do. That's not what's going on here, though. This event is tied to what's going to happen next. See, in the Middle East, Middle Eastern fig trees bore two kinds of fruit. Leaves that would come in the, uh, in the spring... And from these, uh, that, those leaves, there would be this branch that would bear a little bud or a nodule. And they were abundant and good for eating. They weren't the fig, but they came in advance. And many travelers, as they would walk by these fig trees, they would pick them and eat them. And so if you were to come up to one, to a fig tree, and see that it had leaves but no buds, you knew something was wrong. It could be sick, it could be diseased, it could be dying. Something was wrong. From far away, it looks like it's a normal, healthy fig tree, just not in season. 
It looks like it's growing, but when you come up close, you see it's not actually doing its job. It's not bearing fruit, and it's not even bearing these buds. Jesus is pronouncing what is reality about this fig tree. It's not going to bear fruit. Something's wrong with it. Of course, there's not going to be fig, uh, these little figs on it, but there's also not even those little nodules to take and eat from. He's pronouncing a reality about this fig tree, but there's more than that. And we start to make sense of it when you read on what happens next. In verse 15, we're told, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and the first place he goes to is the temple. He enters the doors of the temple, and the first place he would have had stood when he comes in is this court of the Gentiles. It's the largest court that the temple area would have had, and it was the area you would have had to go through in order to get anywhere else in the temple. Gentiles just meaning the nations, anyone who wasn't Jewish. It was the area where all the nations outside of Jewish people were allowed to worship and pray, but they couldn't go any further than this. They even had signs that said, if you cross this, if you enter into this other area, you are actually like uh, at risk of being killed. And in the temple, during this time, the understanding was that God's presence dwelled here in a unique way. This was, the temple was God's dwelling place. So if you wanted to be close to God, you had to come to the temple. And this is the closest area that the Gentiles could come to. And this is the court you would have had to have walked through if you were Jewish and you wanted to get to the other ones. And this place would have been full. This is Passover week. It would have been packed. This ancient Jewish historian named Josephus, he writes that one year during Passover... Over 250 lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple courts. So can you imagine the noise from the people, from the animals, how densely packed this place would have been? The whole city would have been full of people and animals. Some of you who like the fireworks, the celebration of lights in the summer, you know how densely packed downtown gets during those events where you get well over 100,000 people going to one of those events, and it's packed with people everywhere you look. That's the type of idea of the busyness that would have been going on in the, te- in the court of the Gentiles. And there's all these other things going on, this exchanging of, of money to buy temple currency, buying of the animals, carrying of these vessels, all these different things happening. And so what does Jesus do when he sees it? He starts throwing over where animals are kept, the tables. He demands that the money exchangers leave He stops those who are trying to carry these vessels through the temple. He's interrupting and challenging the whole sacrificial system, the very way that they worship. Think about the money, the animals, and the vessels. If money cannot be exchanged into holy currency, then the money that supports the temple sacrifices and the priesthood, it ends. For the temple, it ends. If animals can't be purchased... 
then sacrifices have to end. If vessels can't be carried through the temple, then all worship activity must end. You can imagine then what Jesus is doing here is interrupting everything in this moment. And you can also imagine what the leaders in the temple are thinking as they see someone interrupting this system. Wondering, what are you doing? And Jesus responds and says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? The people expected the Messiah to come and restore the kingdom, to restore the temple, restore God's people, and to purge the Gentiles out of the Jewish lands. But this king arrives, and instead of purging purging the foreigners out of the Jewish lands, he defends them. A house of prayer for all the nations. Jesus cites the prophet Isaiah 56, 7, where God promises blessing to those who think they would be excluded foreigners, eunuchs, those who aren't allowed to enter the temple because they have illnesses and diseases. Matthew's gospel tells us that the sick and the weak start to come to him in the temple and he heals them there. Those who aren't supposed to be welcomed, Jesus welcomes. He's subverting expectations of what the Messiah is supposed to be doing. Now, why would Jesus do this? I mean, even if you read your Bible, in mine, it has a little heading Right? These par- it helps you separate the paragraphs so it's not just one bunch of text. And it says, Jesus cleanses the te- temple. Cleanses. I'm not sure that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Cleansing means you're going to continue to use this place. It's going to continue to be something that operates. So why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus do the- this in the temple? Let me offer three reasons. One is because Jesus is communicating judgment over their fruitlessness. He isn't and has not come to lead a political revolt, and he hasn't come to restore the temple. He's judging the temple. And this is where the fig tree and the temple begin to come together. The fig tree was an acted parable. The fig tree was a classic symbol for Israel in the Old Testament. And the fig tree and the uh, temple events are like these prophetic actions. Jesus is communicating judgment over Israel's fruitlessness. Jesus, the King of Israel, God in the flesh, came hungry, looking for fruit among the people of God, Israel, and all he finds is leaves. No fruit, not even the buds. Israel was not doing its job. Jesus came to the place that should have been the place of religious and spiritual vitality and instead found corruption, hollow worship, pilgrims being cheated as they tried to exchange their money for temple currency, Gentiles repelled rather than attracted. When Jesus came, and instead of receiving and finding a fruit of responding to him, of people entering into his kingdom, wanting to be rightly related to him. He found a people and faith that was so narrow and legalistic, they refused to listen to him and take his claims seriously, let alone embrace him. Now, I want to be clear. Some people can hear that and think, oh, this is like really coming against Israel, the people of God. All of Jesus' disciples were Jewish. Jewish. Jesus himself is Jewish. 
He's coming and communicating a judgment against those, and in particular religious leaders, who have rejected him. And when the early church would have read this passage, they wouldn't have been thinking of Israel. They would have read it and actually thought about the church, their people, the people of God. They would have read what Jesus is confronting here in the temple, and they would have actually applied him like, is this presence in us? They would have heard it as a warning. And so Jesus came in and walked among us. What would he find? What would he see in our church? What would he see in you and I? What kind of fruit would there be? Would he find us in us prayerlessness that is rampant? Because he wants you in his presence. Would he say, you worship me with your mouth, but your heart isn't present? Because he wants your heart. Would he say that we have no zeal to make him known in our lives? He wants others to know him. Would he say that our love and ministry to our community was lacking when he loves our city? Would he say your actions repel instead of attract your children, your neighbors, your co-workers from wanting to know me more? Would he say that being comfortable is actually more important to you than trusting and obeying? I cannot answer that for you. But he can and he knows. And he judges if there's no fruit. He can work with a branch that is slowly budding. It's not fully in season, but there's something that's developing. Why do you think Jesus will say in John 15, 5, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Dead religion falls under God's judgment. God's heart is always to renew his people, but he is willing to start again. The temple and the fig tree were signs that Jesus had come to restore the temple. Had not come to restore the temple, sorry, but to pronounce its end. The end, which would be finalized on the cross. When he cries out, it is finished. And the temple separating the presence of God from the people was torn once and for all. Secondly, because he didn't come to bring this political revolution, he came to bring a revolution of the human heart. If Jesus were interested in a political revolution, he would have led his people to Pilate, taken Pilate out, they would have marched to Rome to take out Caesar. He doesn't do that. He goes to the center of worship in the capital city of Israel. He comes to the heart of religious worship. He comes to the temple, the place where God's dwelling place was. Because way before Israel was ruled and enslaved by the Romans, they were ruled by their sin. They set their hearts on things that could not deliver what they had hoped for. They were not free from their sin. Jesus hadn't come to bring this political revolution. His revolution was much deeper, much more comprehensive and transformative. One that would turn subjects into those who petition and pray for their masters, those who enslave them 
who forgive their enemies and intercede for them. The kingdom and the revolution that Jesus would bring would not come through violent force, but through suffering and surrendering his life out of love for God and for you. This is how Dallas Willard puts it. The revolution of Jesus is first and always a revolution of the human heart. His revolution does not proceed through the means of social institutions and laws, the outer forms of our existence, intending that these would then impose a good order of life upon people who come under their power. Rather, Jesus is a revolution of character, which proceeds by changing people from the inside through ongoing personal relationship with God and one another. Which makes a lot of sense is why Jesus is saying, my people will be, this will be a house of prayer. It's a relationship. It's this connection for all the nations. It is a revolution that changes people's ideas, beliefs, feelings, and habits of choice, as well as their bodily tendencies and social relations. It penetrates to the deepest layers of their soul. External social arrangements may be useful to this end, but they are not the end, nor are they a fundamental part of the means. The Bible, when it talks about your heart, is not just talking about your feelings, your emotions. When the Bible talks about your heart, it's talking about the control center of your being, the control center of your emotions, thoughts, desires, your will. It's that center place. And it's from that place that Jesus wants you to be transformed. Your mind renewed, your loves reordered, your character changed. And this will only happen when you recognize what Jesus has done for you on the cross. This is why Paul, when he writes in Romans 12, after describing what God has done, the effects of the cross, in Romans 12 he says, Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You cannot offer your body, your life as a living sacrifice, set apart for God if you have not seen his great mercy and love for you. You will not do it. You won't love God and you won't love other people properly without coming into contact with Christ's great love for you. You will not be transformed. Your mind won't be renewed apart from seeing God's love for you in Jesus. In view of God's mercy on the cross, God takes the way of suffering, the death on a cross for you. And when your eyes lay hold of that, this God, what he does for you, a true revelation of the heart can happen. The kind of fruit that he is interested in is a kind of patience and trust that develops, even when it's so slow and it just looks like like it's buddy and you're like, I can barely see it, but I think it's there. Moving from impatience to increasing levels of trust. Anger and bitterness that is being rejected and a forgiveness that is learning to absorb pain. And it might be slow to you, and it often is in our lives. But you are able to say that, Jesus, I trust you more today than I did the day that I started following you. That, Jesus, I trust you more today than I did three years ago. I trust you more today than I did before the pandemic. 
Jesus, I am more able to forgive today than I was able to two years ago. Jesus, I have struggled with negative thoughts about myself, my life, but I'm experiencing more of your freedom today than I did a year ago. Jesus, I am growing in my heart for the poor and the marginalized, and I am no longer okay with what's happening around me and in my city. This is about committing to what Jesus is saying, to what he calls us to, to the life that he wants with us, a relationship with him. My sinful and unhealthy ways are not okay. I choose a long obedience in the same direction with you, Jesus. And it's not simply about overnight changes. It's a long obedience in the same direction over many years, over my life. And the third reason I believe Jesus does this is because something, someone greater than the temple was among them and is now among us. The temple was God's dwelling place. God chose to make it his home on earth. And if you wanted to be near God, you had to go to the temple. And God intended for Israel to be a light to the nations through their relationship with God and through the way that God called them out to live. But instead, they kept that light for themselves. The temple had become a place of nationalistic pride, serving to divide Israel from the nations. But Jesus' arrival changes things. In Jesus, God became flesh and entered into human experience, and he became one of us and dwelled among us. And God made his dwelling place among his people. And so on the cross, God breaks those dividing walls down between Jews and Gentiles. And that's what that curtain, the tearing down, makes possible. Being torn down in the temple when Jesus says it is finished. Now anybody from any nation who believes in him, that puts their trust in Jesus, the person, and what he calls us to do, are promised the Holy Spirit. And through the Spirit, Christ dwells in you, and you dwell in him. And Paul says that it's not just like an individual thing. Paul will write in Ephesians that what happens is the new temple of God is his people. The people of God. In Ephesians 2.19 Paul will write, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See, here's what's beautiful about this. It doesn't say you are building together. It says you are being built together. So Jesus comes to his people and he looks at them and says, what do I see in you? What is present in you? What kind of fruit are you bearing? What do you love most? What have you prioritized most? And some of us recognize that, and there is this like sense of guilt, conviction, maybe even shame over like, actually, I've prioritized my comfort way more than obeying you, Jesus. 
Actually, I haven't even been grieved over the marginalized in our city. It doesn't really bother me very much. And we feel that. But what this is saying to us is that, look, he is committed to calling out the sin in our lives, but he is also committed to having us be transformed, to building us into the people. And our role is to actually allow him to shine that light in our lives so that we would turn from it and be the people that he intended for us to be as individuals and as a community. It's uncomfortable, but there's a promise. And the promise you see most clearly on the cross that he will go, he will judge our sin, and he will also take the cup. He will take the consequences of it. But we have a responsibility as his people to respond to that, to turn from our sin and to walk with him and trust him. He judges all of that kind of false spirituality, the dead religion, the hollow worship, the prayerlessness. He condemns it, and he also says, and I take the consequences for those of you who choose to turn from this and ask for forgiveness. I will suffer. I will lay down my life so that whoever trusts in me can have their hearts transformed so that they can be set free from this and so that I can dwell with them. I will die so that they can live in freedom and love. And so one of the most appropriate things you can do on Palm Sunday as you walk into Holy Week is confess your sin. Not act like there is no sin in your life. And ask Him for forgiveness. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all of our unrighteousness. Part of what Jesus came to do is to purchase our forgiveness. That's an appropriate response. Secondly, you can commit to his way. Jesus has been calling us, deny yourself and follow me. Serve the lowly with me. Suffer with me. Abide in me in all that you do. Trust me in all that you do. Confess your sin, but then commit to his way. And third, come to him in prayer and scripture. Be a house of prayer. This week, read through the passion stories. Pick one of the gospels and just read through it. Immerse yourself in the story of what it is that God has done for you and I, for the world. And let it infuse and inform your prayers. Read through Palm Sunday today and tomorrow. Read through what Jesus does when he washes his disciples' feet through the Last Supper. Read through Good Friday passages when Jesus is betrayed and crucified. And then read through the resurrection stories. The new life that God brings. The disciples on the road to Emmaus not understanding what has happened. Failing to make sense of it and Jesus having to make sense of it for them. There's an opportunity for us to allow the Spirit of God to highlight sin and brokenness and areas where we haven't trusted Him or we've been apathetic and and distracted and turn from it and allow him to renew us 
and allow that fruit to come and actually bless others. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a moment in silence to come before God. And I'm going to invite the Lord just to make us aware of anything in our lives that he wants us to turn from. And then we're just going to respond to him. Living God, you are present among us. And your desire is that we would be rightly related to you. And so right now, Spirit, we say, come. Make us aware of any sin, any um, impurity, anything you don't want your people to have that we've been holding on to, that we've been distracted with, that we've been focused on, that we haven't been doing or that we have been, whatever it may be, Lord. We want to be in relationship with you. So Spirit, shine your light. might just be me, but I think for uh, some of us, it's actually like he, w- he wants us to be living in his joy, the joy of his salvation, the joy that comes from being with him, and we've actually just been missing it. So Jesus, for those who resonate with that, we ask you'd help us to turn from looking for joy in other places that cannot deliver to lead us Jesus forgive us for losing sight of what you make possible a joy that transcends our circumstances a joy that comes from your salvation from life in you you and us and us in you We ask for your forgiveness for all those things that we've just been prioritizing over and above you, of being physically present, but spiritually our hearts are just in another place. For the pride that we've had in our hearts, thinking that we can live life without ever coming to you in prayer in the day. So forgive us of prayerlessness, Lord, of a lack of concern, 
for those in need in our city, Lord. Cleanse us, Lord, and restore us, we ask in your name. Amen. We're going to take communion, and communion is this deeply personal,